Tonight's reading is from Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 30, the parable of the mustard seed. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Thank you, Ian. And so tonight we want to talk uh, about the parable of the, the mustard seed, as uh, Ian uh, very nicely read to us. But for us to do that, the parable of the mustard seed, we've really got to go back in time and get our heads around what was going on in the minds of the first century Jews. Because at that time, the Jews were expecting the kingdom of God to arrive. And the kingdom of God was an ancient Jewish notion of God's rule and God's reign on this earth. And it's going to be the application of God's authority over everyone. And it's where God's sovereignty would rule and where his will, therefore, would be done. It was going to be God's kingdom on this earth. And you might think of not as God's kingdom as God's society. Because a kingdom is a place, but it's more importantly a group of people. A society of people. And it was God's kingdom that was coming to earth that would make right all the wrongs the Jewish people had experienced in their lives. And not only that, not to put right the wrongs, but it was going to establish the Jewish nation at the top of the ladder. They were going to be the ruling nation once again. But to understand really what's going on at this point in time in the minds of the Jews, I want to go back to one of the old prophetic stories uh, in, found in the book of Daniel. And the story about the kingdom of God is all the way down through the scriptures. But I want to go back to Daniel chapter 2. I'm just going to, I mean, the scene is... In Daniel chapter 2, we read about King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was a real power and authority, and he dominated the Babylonian Empire, the greatest empire that existed at this point in time. And in this story of Daniel, the Nebuchadnezzar came with his armies, and he overthrew all the Jews, and he overthrew Jerusalem, and he stole all the treasures out of the temple, and took them back to Babylon, along with all the elite, as it were, of the expanded Jewish royal family, which included Daniel. And Daniel, God had given the gift and the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And he was an incredibly intelligent man. And so the authorities 
took Daniel and others and brought them back captive into Babylon. And they were going to serve in the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Then King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it really disturbed him. And none of his wise men, and they even call them sorcerers, could explain what this dream was all about. But they heard about Daniel, so of course they called Daniel in. And we get Daniel interpreting the dream uh, in Daniel chapter 2. And this is what it says. It says, down and I'm just going to go through a few verses. It said, when he's brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel says, Your majesty, look, and there before you, you stood a large statue. So Nebuchadnezzar saw this great statue in front of him in his dream. An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. Now that means then, if it's not cut out by human hands, the inference is it's cut out by some divine power. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, then the clay, then the bronze, then the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and came like chaff on a freshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Then I jumped down, and then Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. So Daniel is prophesying here and saying, look, there will be a kingdom coming that will crush all these kingdoms that are represented in the statue, all four of them, and then this kingdom will be established and it will rule over all. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. Dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. And this is a story that came to fruition uh, down through the years. And there were indeed four great empires that came into existence. First of all, the Babylonians were destroyed. But after them came the Medo-Persians. Then, of course, came the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And then, at the time of Jesus, of course, along just before him, along came the Romans. 
and established their empire over the Jewish nations. And they were brutal. They put their boot on the neck of the, uh, the Jewish empire, and they were despised by the Jews. And at that time, you know, Nero, you've heard of Caesar, and Nero was Caesar at that time. And he even threw these Jews to the wild animals for entertainment. And then he taxed them heavily. And so the Jewish people believed this story that had been told all the way down through the ages that these nations were going to come and they were going to be oppressed by them. But eventually at the fourth one, then their king was going to return and their king is called the Messiah. And that Messiah was going to be their deliverer, going to be their savior and fulfill Daniel's vision. And they believed it was imminent. They were at a fever pitch. They were looking for any signs. And there was rabbis going around all about trying to prophesy exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And you can imagine the excitement because it's now going to happen. The Romans were going to be dealt with. And our new Messiah would lead us to victory, would lead us to freedom. And then we would be the great nation that we believe we are destined to be. And then Jesus turns up. doesn't quite look like the Messiah they were expecting. doesn't look like the king that's going to overthrow these Roman oppressors. He's just a simple rabbi from Nazareth. What does this rabbi say? As you read in Mark 1. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's at hand. It's beginning. Repent and believe the good news. How do you think they reacted to that? Look at them and go, What? You're telling us the kingdom has come? And actually, in the the language of N.T. Wright, I read that Jesus is saying, look, give up your agenda and trust me for mine. But the kingdom of God is the central message of Jesus. We need to really grasp that. And the phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, which Matthew used because he wouldn't make reference to God, to a conservative Jewish people, we find that actually repeated 150 times in the Gospels. And the phrase, eternal life, which is used in John's Gospel, because he was speaking to a non-Jewish crowd, if you add them together, it's hundreds of times it's mentioned in the Gospels alone. 
kingdom of God. And if we look at Paul's writing, you know, of course, Paul didn't use so often the word kingdom of God, but he talks about when Jesus is Lord and when you will be adopted and redeemed, and these are all kingdom of God words. So the kingdom of God is absolutely a central message of the Gospels and of the New Testament of, of the whole scriptures. From Genesis, when God walked upon this earth and set up his kingdom, all the right through to when it will be reestablished and set up and completed in Revelation. All the way through the scriptures, we read about the kingdom of God. So Jesus arrives and he starts to teach. And then he starts to heal. And he starts to reach out to the poor. And the crowds start to follow him. And the crowds get larger and so much so that when he goes to speak, he ends up in Matthew 4 actually going out into the lake and sitting on a boat because the crowd is so great, they've all gathered round the edge of the lake shore. And he starts to teach them many things by parables. And a parable can be defined, of course, as really just a simple story that illustrates a really deep or profound truth. And Jesus began to teach the people using parables. Now, so then we come down to Mark chapter 4, and then we read that Jesus starts by saying to them, what is the kingdom of God like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Question mark. When I saw that, I thought, well, what was, why did he say this? You know, I was thinking, you know, this massive crowd is here and he has to go out in the boat and he's looking back at the shore and he's going to go, okay, uh, I'm going to have to talk to them about the kingdom of God. That's, you know, not what they're thinking. They have got the whole idea wrong. Uh, you know, he's scratching his head. What, what am I going to teach them? You know, was, I don't think that's really what's going on. Jesus, I think, was gently helping them to see that actually they were going to have a big hurdle to overcome because they thought they knew all about the kingdom of God because they've been taught it all their years in the synagogues and by their families and through the scriptures they read. They're very familiar with Daniel. Of course, this has been repeated again and again at this point in time. Why? Because it's the fourth nation to oppress us. It's got to happen. And so they were very familiar with it. And Jesus, goes, Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. But he had to get their attention away that was going to prepare them for this massive leap in their thinking from where they are to where they needed to get to. 
But you know, that's the same for I was thinking, that's the same for you and I. There's a time where we need to make a massive leap in our thinking from where we are to where we need to get to. That radical change in thinking. That's what Jesus calls repentance. We actually think differently. We believe and trust. That's because we see things differently. So he said, you know, what am I going to teach them? How am I going to describe this kingdom of God? And he picks a mustard seed. The smallest of all the seeds that are sold at the marketplace. So they've heard a lot about the kingdom of God. They've got all this preconceived notion. They're at fever pitch. They knew the prophecies because they read the prophetic literature. They had ideas about what the king and the kingdom must be like. That was well understood. That Israel is going to become this great new nation. They're going to deal with their oppressors. God is going to put them at the top of the table. The world is going to turn and look to them. The leaders and the kings of the nations are going to be streaming into Jerusalem to learn about God from the Jewish people. And at the kernel of this was that God was going to destroy their enemies, smiting Rome, setting up their kingdom, and giving them a new king, just as Daniel taught. And Jesus says, well, actually, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And this must be incredibly confusing to them. It must have been counterintuitive. It must have gone against the grain, as it were. Sorry, that pun. But it must have gone against the grain of all their thinking, all they've been taught. So they must have been confused. It's not what they were expecting. It must have been completely countercultural. It meant that they have to have a complete change in mindset. I mean, is this guy really for real? But there's three things that we can also learn that they had to learn from this kingdom parable. First of all, Jesus quite deliberately picks a seed a mustard seed, a small seed, small and unimpressive, common, sold in the marketplace. Why on earth did he pick a mustard seed? And I think there's something in that. There's just a mustard seed is just very humble in nature. It's not impressive. And so Jesus confronts the notion of their greatness as defined by the Jews and the Jewish world. Because they were saying, just like we hear today, for something to be great, it's got to be the, you know, it's got to be the greatest, it's got to be the biggest, it's going to overflow everything. And, you know, these amazing goals have got to be accomplished. And so when Jesus uses a mustard seed, it shows that something far from impressive is actually the root or the start of this kingdom. But we know even a seed can have great potential. And it's today we are still being programmed 
to look to what is amazing, what is new, what is novel, what's spectacular, what's exciting, what's incredible, what's exceptional, especially social media. These are things that are promoted. And maybe even it creeps into the church and celebrity status. And you know, what's one of the questions we ask when we meet a Christian? How big's your church? You know, that's one of the questions we always ask. You know, how, well, why do we ask that? I don't know. How big is your church? It must be a big church if it's very impressive. But Jesus is saying, if we are looking for the immediately spectacular, like they were, then we might miss the kingdom altogether. So we need to retrain our spiritual eyes to see the kingdom and the kingdom happening before us. When we do things for others out of loving care rather than obligation, when we say words of kindness or acts of kindness, even if we might have been hurt by someone or another person, then these might seem insignificant little actions, but they have the ability to change people. Start to change people, then you start to change culture. But things that seem small when they're coupled together with the power of the Spirit of God, then they have enormous potential for growth into a new kingdom. So that's the first thing, the size of the seed. The second thing, Notice the potential Jesus uses in this parable, not just for the seed aspect, but also what it grows into, a large tree. A seed is tiny, it has no significance. In fact, a seed has no actual life in itself until it's taken and planted into the soil, into the darkness, and then watered. Once it's watered, then it can turn into something. It might turn into a plant, or it might turn into a vegetable that we can eat. Or it might turn into the grass that feeds the animals that we then can eat. That's how we get the beef cattle and how we then get our steaks. That's a pretty big steak, isn't it? It must be an American one. How we get our steaks. Uh, and that's the key thing is, yes, they all have potential, but they all, these seeds only have potential in our life if they are planted. And so therefore, we have to make a decision and then take action on those decisions. How many of us have found seeds in the garage that are still in the packet that have never been planted? Yeah? Okay, I could say so many other things here. But we're all guilty of it. I just wonder how many seeds we actually miss. So we have to make a decision and then take action. And I think it's really important to grasp that, why that's important, because blessings in life depend on where seeds are planted. And Jesus is saying it is the, that is the exact nature of the kingdom of God, that little insignificant things can have phenomenal growth locked inside of them. 
And the kingdom of God does have phenomenal power to change. And I was reading an article about China. And apparently in China, the gospel is having an amazing impact. And I heard, or what I read, was that 70,000 people are being baptized into the church in China per month. And that the church in China is now larger than the total population of all of the United Kingdom. And that's been going on in your and my lifetime. The challenge to us then is not just to plant the seeds, but to have the room in our life and the desire in our minds to step in and take up what Jesus calls his yoke and work with him to expand and invest in the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 32, it does say plant, so we're emphasizing that we have to plant the seed, but that means we've also got to cultivate it. We've got to take care of it. We've got to steward it in biblical language. There are seeds that we receive, we've then got to plant, and then we've got to cultivate, and we've got to look after it. But God tends to give his promises to us in seed form. And we have got the decision to either identify them and do something about or disregard them. And so we've got to let the seeds, as it were, get deeply planted and rooted into our souls. Then we will cultivate and produce the fruit of God. And I know that's going on. And how do I know that's going on? Because I see and experience love from others. And that's the fruit of the seeds given by God. The love, the joy, the peace, the, kind, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. That's the fruit that we will see growing and manifesting in the church round about us. And it's that fruit that goes out into the community that impacts the people around about us. And they say, you know, there's something different about these people. They're bringing this blessing of God into their lives. And so God wants us to work with them to help grow and invest in his kingdom on this earth. So how do we going to cultivate that seed that we've been given? How do we cultivate the seed not just as individuals but as a community to do things that we couldn't do on our own but we can do collectively? Every single one of us has something that God has designed us to do. You're all unique individuals designed by God as it were. And you've got potential and God wants to give you his seeds um, his seeds. And we've all got this potential. And, and God has placed something into you, into our hearts, into our minds. And he's given us the gifts of the Spirit into our lives. But not just gifts. He's given us desires. He's given us passions. He's given us dreams. He's given us vision. He's given us skills. He's given us godly characteristics. He might even give us discontent. I want to say I'm not happy at that. 
And I want to do something about it. And so they are planted deep within us. And it might be an idea from someone else. It might be a verse we've read. It might be a kindness we've received. It might be even just a thought from another that helps advance the kingdom. And don't think that you are insignificant in God's eyes. Sometimes we can see no way, but uh, we can see no way that we can be significant within our own little kingdom, our sphere of influence. But true humility is simply believing that what God says about you is true. And God says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And God wants growth and expansion and victory with you. So what we have to do is ask and then listen. What does God want to do with us? And Jesus, of course, is our model on how we should live in the kingdom. Jesus the planted the Jesus was the seed that was planted by God two thousand years ago that started the kingdom. And now we are invited to step into that kingdom and plant the seeds that he has given us and let him bless them as we cultivate them into the greater kingdom, which will help it grow from glory to glory. And so we get glimpses of heaven here and now. It's not fully established. And it's like when... Sometimes the clouds part and the rays of sunshine comes down and that's when life we see just the glimpses of God's glory here upon this earth. And that's what we experience as we wait for the return of our King who's coming to reign and rule in our lives forever and ever. So, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God at his first coming. And we wait for his second coming when it will be fully completed. So the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. It is not yet completed. And so that is where we live in this present time. The Jews thought the kingdom would come all at once. But instead, it comes in different places, in different bits, and different pieces. But it is here right now. And so we are called to live for the future and the present. So what God is doing in you and in, through you is what God is going to do for the whole of creation one day. So we are partners with Jesus in kingdom work, loving God and loving others. That's what he asks us to do. So will teaching on the kingdom of God change us? Well, yes, if we want it to. The challenge is to believe that what Jesus said about the kingdom of God and what he's saying about you and me is actually true. The challenge for us 
is to ask God to change our lives and help us live in and then live out the kingdom of God. Thank you.